come to the Lord's Supper message, as I call it, um, <coughs> what I've been learning is that historically, over many, many centuries, uh, the church, including the Old Covenant Church, always had the preaching of the word with the Lord's Supper. They never took the elements as it were without the Lord's, without the word, whether it be the Passover or the Lord's Supper. Both of the signs and seals of the covenant of grace on both sides of the cross of Christ. And so let us uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where we will establish the title, if not the essence of this morning's and afternoon's message, this afternoon's message. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So I'll make sure the scripture here. Uh, 7 and 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as you are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And this is not talking about matzo crackers okay, or unleavened bread. Is talking about spiritual truth and spiritual lies. It's talking about holiness and peace without which no man shall see the Lord, especially that which is in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, credited to our account, imputed to us, and imparted by His Spirit to our hearts and minds. This message essentially is taken from a book that I came across many years ago entitled The Gospel in the Feasts of Israel. It's written back in 1954 by Dr. Victor Buxabazin for the organization known as the Friends of Israel. And in its introduction, which I'd like to read to you a portion of, he writes, Today, the church's disassociation from Judaic culture is not so much deliberate as inculcated. When historic footprints are long and deep, it becomes hard to climb out of them. For the Jew, this has often meant that he has not been evangelized with love, nor within a philosophical framework within which he could identify. For the church has meant far less comprehension of the New Testament scripture. There is not a single major New Testament doctrine which is not clarified, amplified, or illustrated in the Old Testament scripture. Most happily, the evangelical church is beginning to see these long-standing failures and is now moving to correct them. The birth of the modern state of Israel, prophetic implications of present world events, and this is back in 1954, mind you, and increased numbers of Jews who are receiving their Messiah have been the catalyst for this change of attitude. Biblical Christianity is not a continuation of Judaism. 
but it is the logical outgrowth and consequence of adherence to Moses and the prophets. The gospel of the Feast of Israel, that's this, will serve to underscore that intimate relationship. The author of the book addresses, addressed to the Hebrews saw that relationship when he wrote, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, Hebrews 12, 2. If God be pleased, may the searching Jew who picks up this volume find that accepting Jesus as Messiah is not inconsistent with his great heritage. But may the true Christian see anew, or more brilliantly, his eternal indebtedness to the descendants of Abraham through Jacob. Very interesting uh, writer, and as you will see, because as I said, uh, this message is based upon his sermon or message that he gave way back then when I was still I won't say in diapers but not not long after that <laughs> and uh, this is the faith once delivered to the saints put yourselves in the place of the messianic Jew I need to do that notice I said messianic Jew or Christian Jew and especially when it comes to the Passover because the Passover was that supper that they ate together every year at that time of the year, which our Lord ate with his disciples, if you recall, before he then transformed the remainder of that time together, that meal together, or that supper together, to his supper. There's a glass of salt water on the table that represents the Red Sea, but also the tears that they endured during their bondage in Egypt. There are three matzos, or cakes, or crackers, that are covered by a white napkin. Uh, it's like the unleavened cakes that their forefathers had hastily threw together before they had to take off because of the decree of Pharaoh, who was out to get them. There's a shank bone, I almost think of a bone without any meat on it, but apparently there's, there's, there's meat on that bone. Placed in the ta on the table that, to represent the Lamb of God that they were commanded to eat. Every one of those Jewish households were commanded to eat that night of the Passover. And let me read to you from Exodus 12.3 about that Passover. And this is the significant chapter, by the way on the Passover. This is Exodus chapter 12. I won't read the whole thing. I'll only read verse 3. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, Moses, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. That's what they were to do. And oftentimes that lamb would be their best lamb, or even a family pet, if you can picture that. An unblemished lamb, without blemish, without spot. Picture of Christ. So there are three matzahs covered with this white napkin to represent what their forefathers made when they made the unleavened bread. Then the shank bone to represent what they would eat along with that bread. And this was 
to be a reminder to every generation that it was the blood of the lamb sprinkled on the lentils and doorposts as is illustrated in, in your bulletin cover. And doorpost which stood between them and certain death. And this is not by Pharaoh, but by the Lord. The night that God poured out his wrath upon the firstborn of Egypt. And then there were four cups of red wine that they would drink throughout that supper that were, of course, none other than representative of the blood of the Lamb of God. And there was a hard-boiled egg Symbolic of the second sacrifice of the Passover. There were four. Bitter herbs, which were probably horseradish, to bring tears to their eyes as a reminder of the bitterness that their forefathers endured as slaves of Pharaoh. Then there's what's called a cherusim, a clay-like substance that's made of apples and nuts that was typifying the clay from which the Jews fashioned bricks that they were forced to make, but they were not given all of the ingredients to make these bricks, and for they're not making any bricks, or for they're making bricks that were not substantial bricks, in other words, hard bricks, they were punished. And this is what they used to make the mighty cities of Ramses and Pharaoh and others. And now our Savior, at this point, washes the feet of his disciples in his supper with a towel and then, of course, that he dries them. And I will read it. He riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. And why was that? To show his love to them and to show that they are to love one another. We were slaves in Egypt. The father, who is the one that's conducting the service, washes his hands and pronounces the benediction upon the household and over the wine before they drink it. This is our Lord did with his disciples. Then there's this long recitation in this sonorous kind of chanting of the story of God's deliverance from beginning to end. No stone left unturned. For we were slaves in Egypt, but God redeemed us by his power. And for the next hour or two, he would enlarge upon these points. For two hours, you think we have it hard with an hour of preaching and... <laughs> Our forefathers of the Old Covenant uh, <coughs> would have this uh, each and every Passover. Because they believed it was good in order to set forth the mighty acts of God. It is good to explain what the symbols are that are before them on the table. It is good to invite others such as the poor and the hungry, from the villages to come and to partake with them. And when they would count the plagues, when they got to that part, the father would dip his finger in the cup and would cause a drop of wine to drop 
with every wave. And so there was the blood and the frogs and the various kinds of vermin, which led finally up to the passing over of the angel of death. But only one thing was missing, which is the very heart of this Passover, and that is the lamb. The Passover without a lamb, according to this author, is like a wedding without a bride. I would say it is a wedding without the bridegroom, because is it not the bridegroom who is the lamb that is without blemish and without spot, who offers himself to his bride, the church? What the modern Jew celebrates today is not the Passover, but the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Nevertheless, the people rejoice, remembering what God did for their ancestors, delivering them from the thraldom of enslavement, and setting them free, and making them the people of God who were once not the people of God. And isn't this what God is about? Even to this very day, in his saving us, we're Jews and Gentiles. And then bringing us, finally, to the promised land of heaven. Year by year, for 35 centuries, the Jews had been repeating this story without unfailing regularity, witnessing of God to the world, drawing hope and strength to carry on through whatever sufferings they may be enduring each and every generation, in each and every generation. That he may deliver his people from the pharaohs of this world and from the Hamans and from the Hitlers and from the Mussolinis and the Stalins. Whatever the people be tied. Passover is the greatest story of deliverance that there is, only exceeded by the work of Christ, which is what it pictures. Is that it is the type of that anti-type, as theologians would say. It is the harbinger of a greater redemption yet to come, because it's not complete, for there's yet another coming of our Lord. And thus, this supper, this Passover, this old covenant, sign and seal, is the vehicle of the dying love and undying love and hope of Messiah. And then there's the last Passover that was celebrated in the upper room in the time of our Lord in Jerusalem in an ancient house called the Koenakulam, uh, which is the upper room where our Lord commemorated the Last Supper with his twelve. And where Jesus ordained the most sacred rite amongst Christians, and that is the Lord's Supper, or communion. Commemorating his death and his resurrection and his coming again. It was here in this upper room that the Passover at last obtained the true meaning and significance through the words of the Lord himself, who is the object not only of true worship, but even of the sacrifice. How his heart yearned to have them gather with him at this Passover, his nearest and dearest in this life, his 12, even with one being 
his betrayer. Luke 12, uh, sorry, 22:15 says, And he said unto them, With desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. They all knew that he was going to die at this point. And their hearts were sad, of course. And that was the tenor of this occasion. For after all, they're celebrating his death. They're setting forth his death. They're proclaiming the Lord's death. That was to come, which the church would continue to proclaim until he comes again. Here they sat together observing the Passover as commanded them according to Exodus 12 in the first part of that occasion. But what new life was now infused into this ancient observation by the one who was with the final authority to speak to this Passover story. That is the Messiah himself, the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Lamb of God, taketh away the sin of the world as John describes him as he's about to shed his precious blood on the cross and die the death of a criminal in order that we who are the criminals might become as it were innocent children of God that all who believe in him might be set free from the Egypt of sin and darkness and be enabled to live a new life as children of God. Among the many symbolic actions of this Passover, there's the eating what's called the uh, pikomen. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. But it's where the father takes the middle matzo, remember there are three under this napkin, and he takes it and breaks it, and after pronouncing a benediction, distributes half of it to the members of his family and others that are gathered at the table. And then he does a strange thing. He takes the other half and he hides it until the end. And then he will reveal it. And the children are all in amazement of this every time and are wondering, where did he hide it? Where is it? Hidden. Hidden from their eyes. Hidden from the world. It says that uh, he, uh, he was in the world and the world knew him not. But to them that will receive him, to them gave you power to become the children of God. A wonderful testimony to the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ and to his resurrection. Even so, the Lord Jesus sat down with his disciples, it says in Luke 22, 19, and he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given or broken for you. This do, meaning partake in remembrance of me. The red wine on the table brings to mind what? As I've said already, the blood of the lamb. The blood that was shed from that lamb in the sacrifice of the Passover by the high priest once a year. The blood that was symbolized on that table by that shank bone Though there is no blood in it, then perhaps no more flesh. That symbolized how the children of Israel were saved from death. And our Savior too partook of that red wine after blessing it and dividing it to his disciples. Did he not? And he said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of 
Again, he himself was the final reality of what this was all about. And the final authority to speak as to what this was all about. It is his blood that saves Jews and Gentiles alike from the death of sin and its eternal consequences and makes everyone who comes with childlike faith to him a child of God. And then there's a hymn that a song or perhaps you might think there were several hymns that would be from Psalms 113 to 118. So those hymns, six psalms or hymns in uh, in uh, 118, which is a fairly long one, we turn to it. We'll read from verses 21 through 24 of Psalm 118. You could even sing it, but I won't sing solo. We'll have to sing it together as we all partake of the Lord's Supper. That's one. Uh, we turn to it. I, I think we all know this well enough. Psalm 118, 21 through. 24. I will praise thee. I will praise thee. Are you with me? For thou hast heard me. For thou hast heard me. And art become. And art become my salvation. My salvation. I will praise thee. For thou hast heard me. And art become my salvation. I will praise thee, I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes, marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day, this is the day which the Lord hath made. Little abbreviation there, but we got it. <laughs> and so, uh, moving on. Those were the very words which our Lord uttered to his disciples after the Passover feast. How that he was the stone rejected by the builders. He is the cornerstone of God's church. Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, as he is called by Peter. The one who is the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. Which is and which was and which is to come. The Almighty is God, contrary to what world religions purport. And that's all they do is purport. They don't know. They don't believe. They don't have. It's all conjecture on the part of those who don't know, who are in blindness and darkness. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting, thou art God. That's who God is to his people. Thou art my dwelling place, said David. And this is the Lord's doing, marvelous in his sight. He even saves any of us 
from our sins. I shouldn't be here, but for the grace of God. You shouldn't be here, but for the grace of God. And when he had sung this hymn, they then shortly thereafter went to the Mount of Olives. And this is after his death and resurrection from the dead, where they sang one more time before his ascension back to his glory. Christ arose as David foretold he would. The story of redemption would not be complete without the resurrection, though he said, yes, he did, and it is, it is recorded, it is finished when he cried his last breath. But nevertheless, his work was not actually com completed until his resurrection from the dead. The story of Jesus does not end with his death upon a cross and burial in a borrowed tomb. If that were the end, the cross would be a beautiful story and a tragic one at best. But Christ rose the victor over the dark domain, raised up by the power of God according to the very promise of his Father, according to the very promise that he gives himself personally to his disciples that after three days I will rise again and I will meet you in Galilee. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, David by the Spirit spoke, which is reiterated by our Lord. Neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. Christ arose, the first fruits of the resurrection, meaning he was the first one to rise from the dead bodily. Bring to all of us who are believers assurance, full assurance of faith that if we were to die, we will live through him and for him his glory. Let's read together 1 Corinthians 15 20 through 22. 1 Corinthians 15 20 through 22. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. There you are. There you have it. It is written. It is said. It is preached. Today on Mount Zion, there's a shrine that's dear to the hearts of Jews that is the burial place of their most beloved king, David. And on it is engraved in golden Hebrew letters the words, David, the king of Israel, lives forevermore. Very similar to a statement that he made in the spirit when he says that, that uh, David will reign forever upon his throne. The apostle Peter preached about it at Pentecost. You heard me preach about the sermon of Peter at Pentecost. And in Acts 2, 29-32, what do we read there again? To, again, establish this most important point of the resurrection. Acts 2, 29-32. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulchers 
with us unto this day. And there it is. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God hath sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. So he would sit upon the throne after his resurrection. And so the resurrection was of a necessity for the Lord to assume once again his throne of power at the right hand of the Father. He seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. So there you have it. As a result of this sermon, Around 3,000 souls surrendered their life in faith to Messiah. And the first Christian church, as we heard about, even as late as last Lord's Day, consisting of 3,000, was established and was going forward with the gospel, established in Jerusalem. Christ is our Passover. He is our Passover, as we started out with in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 7 and 8. So turning back to it. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and 8. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. As you are unleavened, unleavened means that you don't have the old leaven of sin, because that has been washed by the blood of Christ. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness. As Christians, we can still sin. We can still leaven uh, the holy lump of the work of Christ. We can still leaven the holy lump of the church with our sin. God forbid that we sin, that grace may abound. So neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness do we keep this feast, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. <coughs> and so, let us keep the feast. Let's not stop celebrating the Lord's Supper. I know we used to do this every month, and now we do it every two months. Sometimes the church, we do it with less frequency, quarterly. And there was a time when the Roman church did it annually. I, I didn't know that. And they went from annually to weekly, which baffles me in a way. <laughs> because Paul makes it clear that as often as you do it, meaning not with that regularity as the preaching of the word and the worship of, of God's people on the Lord's day, because of the danger of familiarity breeding contempt and for other even more basic reasons that are endemic to biblical truth as to the secondary importance of that to the word and to the gospel but nevertheless nevertheless the church has kept the feast and so let's keep the feast shall we having been refreshed hopefully with more and new understanding and our hearts renewed in love to our Lord and Savior, who loved us and bought us with his precious blood. Behold what manner of love the Father hath given unto us, that we should be called the children of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be, 
but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What a life it is to be a Christian. Amen? Amen. And with that, let us Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And may, O oh Lord, we be encouraged by it. May we, O oh Lord, be renewed by it. May our hope in you be refreshed and strengthened and, and become a, a, a hope that uh, will not make us not only not ashamed, but will make us brave. Uh, this untoward world that is in so desperate need of that message to which we have been called. Because you said that you are my witnesses. You are witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, where I started my church, and Judea, and Samaria, unto the uttermost part of the earth. So, Lord, Lord, help us. Help us by continuing to strengthen our faith, our hope, and our love in you. And do this for your glory, for the honor of our Savior, and for our eternal good.